Hello and welcome to an Asia Rising podcast. In the interview you're about to hear, Latrobe Asia's director, Professor Nick Bisley, talks to Dr. Ian Hall, a senior fellow in the Department of International Relations at Australian National University. The topic they discussed was Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and in particular, his public appearances around the G20 summit in Australia. Before we get to that, Latrobe Asia has a public event around surrogacy and reproductive travel in Asia. It's on at the State Library of Victoria on Friday 12th of December and it starts at 3pm. You can register for the event and find out more about it on their website, which is at latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. But for now, here's Nick Bisley interviewing Dr. Ian Hall. This is Asia Rising. I'm Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia, and with me to talk all things Narendra Modi is Dr. Ian Hall, a Senior Research Fellow in the Department of International Relations at the ANU. G'day Ian. Hello Nick. Narendra Modi's just finished a whirlwind tour of Australia. The press has been amazingly positive. The relationship between Australia and India certainly looks better than at any point in living memory. And as a close India watcher, I guess first want to start with your sense of um, you know, what you made of the visit overall? I think it's quite an extraordinary visit in many ways. I mean, Amitabh Matu, who you know quite well, has quite rightly said that uh, he expected Modi's trip to, to not really be reported on at all in the Australian media. And yet, we've got a situation in which he's emerged as one of the dominant personalities as a result of the G20 and the subsequent meetings that he had in Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, it was striking that, you know, if you, if you were a sort of casual watcher of these things, not a train spotter like you and me, you'd have thought there was a, it was a kind of G2 or 3, you know, there was Xi Jinping, there was Narendra Modi and Tony Abbott and maybe this guy called Obama mm. floating around the fringes and the rest seemed to be bit parts and you, you sort of felt a bit sorry for David Cameron and Francois Hollande, uh, both of whom gave state addresses but seemed to be completely invisible. That's right, yeah, I think that's right, with uh, Putin after all as the kind of pantomime villain in the background. Yeah, we feel hiss on cue. The thing that struck me is, you know, Modi's a supremely strategic operator with media and the like and, and planned this extensive array of events. And as uh, Amitabh said, you know, this, this wasn't directed at the Australian audience. So who, who was this for? So just like during his trip to the United States, Modi has been keen to reach out to the Indian diaspora. And he did the same thing at a big rally in Madison Square Garden in, in New York when he went to the US to give his address at the UN. And he's done the same thing here with the Indian communities in Sydney and in Melbourne. And I would expect him to do the same when he goes to the UK. Uh, and obviously he did speak too in Fiji to the Indian community over there. It's about, to some degree, reaching out to those people of Indian origin and those non-resident Indians and to try to encourage them to support his government so part of it's just a political pitch. But part of it's also to say thank you because a lot of his political campaign in the election in April, May this year was funded and supported by non-resident Indians and by the Indian diaspora more generally, mm. especially Gujaratis uh, from his home state of Gujarat. Are there any figures on this? Or is it, I mean, it, is it it's just kind of well known that this is the case, but we don't quite know what the... It's asserted that it's the case. Yeah. I wouldn't want to put a number on yeah. it. Um, I've seen numbers floating around in the Indian media, but but the numbers that are put on campaign spending in India are a little uncertain. Uncertain is a polite word for it. <laughs> I was at one of the Modi events in Melbourne um, at the MCG, and you'd think it was a rock concert. The free song in the air when he arrived, the whooping. I mean, they were whooping when he started speaking. It was quite something. 
Do you think the pitch to Australia is part of a sort of new approach for Modi, or is it, or do you think this is just opportunistic on the back of G20? No, I think there's two things going on here. One <coughs> is that there's been a, a fairly concerted effort over the last 10 years, and there's a continuation of that effort to try and engage those diaspora communities. They're, after all, wealthy. They've got money to invest. They've also got know-how and they've got skills that have been taken outside of India. India, for the last 60 years, has produced great graduates, and those graduates have gone and worked in Silicon Valley, or they've worked in London, or they've worked in Sydney and elsewhere. So part of it's about that, and that's why the diaspora community was important in this particular trip and in the trip to the US. The other part of it, though, is the new assertiveness in Indian foreign policy and we were all a little bit uncertain about what Modi's foreign policy was going to look like and how he was going to re-engage. And I think we've all been taken slightly aback by the way in which he's come out and made it about him and made it about his own energy, his own charisma, his own personality. And he's also, as it was very clear in the address to Parliament in particular, emphasising the idea that he is a, as Tony Abbott put it, a can-do Prime Minister, somebody who can push the Indian bureaucracy to, to change and to reform and to bring in new policies. And that's been a very interesting theme to watch emerge over this trip and the one to the US. The Abbott thing was also quite intriguing in the sense that you know, I felt when Abbott went to India earlier in the year, it seemed, at least from a distance, that there was no real chemistry there, that they, they got along and, and it was there wasn't that kind of spark that seemed to be there between Abe and Abbott. And yet this time round, there was much more, you know, there was a bromance in the air between the two of them, um, com- complete with bear hug, which, to give Modi credit, he looked decidedly uncomfortable in when Abbott <laughs> clinched him at the MCG. But, and it seemed genuine. And again, it's about that sort of personalised quality of, of Modi and a bit of a personalised quality around Abbott. To what extent is the kind of individual side of this driving it? And is it a risk that as individuals change, things will disappear? Or is there kind of more there, do you think? Alyssa Ayres, who's a very good India watcher in Washington, pointed out that uh, Abbott had more hugs from Narendra Modi than any other world leader. By the time he got one in Parliament, that was his second, and he got another one in Melbourne. So that's three, and most people have had one so far. So there is clearly personal chemistry (laughs) between these two. And that's kind of a slightly odd situation, given how very different those two characters are. Modi is a teetotal bachelor he doesn't have profess any particular interest in sport uh, he made some some ritual references to cricket um, but he's not actually particularly interested in cricket by all accounts and Abbott of course is is Tony Abbott in the speedos and the firefighting and the general Superman act that he engages in so they're quite different characters I think though that the the chemistry comes around that that notion that these are two individuals who feel that they can personally lead and change government and bring about significant change and reform. Abbott hasn't quite demonstrated that yet, and perhaps nor has Modi, but they both have this self-perception that mm. they are, to use that horrible management consultancy phrase, change agents. The other thing seems to be the language is all about we're pro-business, profit isn't a dirty word, global markets are a good thing. There's a sort yes. of bit of a, a kind of neoliberal loving going on as well. That's right. And Abbott picked up on that in his introduction to the speech uh, with <clears> Modi, <throat> saying that you know Australia was open for business, as he said, after the election. And he said India is now also open for business. And emphasised Modi's line about make in India, the idea that other societies, other firms, companies, states come and invest money to build things, to manufacture things in India, which has not really been the way in which India has led its 
economic change over the last 20 years or so. It's not been export-led growth as we've seen for Japan and then for China and for Korea and Southeast Asia. It's been domestic demand that's driven Indian economic change over the last 20 years. To sort of shift a little bit to the sort of broader Australia-India relationship, I think one of the striking features, you know, if you look back over the longer run history of Australia-India relations since the Second World War, since Indian independence and Australian foreign policy independence for that matter, is how the relationship waxes and wanes and seem to wax and wane particularly on how good or bad elite relationships at the very pointy end of government are. It looks to me as if this is almost at the risk of repeating that once again, that this is about Modi, it's about Abbott, and it's all great now. Three years' time, Abbott could be gone. Who knows quite how the political stars will align. Are we going to see that repeat itself? Or is there, as a lot of the, particularly the, the people like Amitabh Matu, who are banging the drum for a shift in Australia-India relations, saying, this time's different? This is a little bit different than before. There have been these periodic attempts at, uh, on the Australian part to re-engage India. There was an attempt under Whitlam in the early 70s. There was also another attempt then in the early 1990s that was meant to be about cultural connections and people-to-people links and about the study of South Asian politics and so on. And then there's been another attempt uh, under John Howard in particular to try and re-engage with India. And in the meantime, what's happened is that the trading relationship has slowly built. It peaked in about 2007-8 when there were about $20 billion worth of bilateral trade. It's now slipped back to about $15 billion. And investment has grown, but actually it's grown more with India investing more in Australia than Australia's invested in India. That's probably where some of the change could come on the economic side. But the economic realities are that India is creeping up that league table of economic partners for Australia, and it'll probably carry on doing that. And as the importance of that trading relationship grows, then I think the politics will follow. So after all, Australia's foreign policy alliance aside is essentially about the maintenance of good trading relationships with its immediate neighbours in in the Asia-Pacific. So if trade seems to be driving the kind of tenor of relationships, so the China relationship is seen as important principally because of trading relationship. What are the sort of obstacles to that? As you said, the trade relationship has peaked, the the dollar value at any rate of two-way trades peaked and and has sort of flatlined. I don't think it's gone backwards, but it's sort of flat last time I checked. So what are the obstacles preventing that? You know, why is it that the the trade has basically sat there when India as a whole has grown and Australia as a whole has grown? There's a number of different factors. One of them is the difficulty (coughs) of doing business in India. And India repeatedly lags at the bottom of league tables on the ease of doing business. Now, Modi could do something to change that, and he's promised to do something to change that and make it much easier for for companies from outside India to invest, to build infrastructure and to manufacture in India, which has been very difficult up to this point. The other aspects of it are India did suffer a little bit as a result of the um, global financial crisis and it didn't have the cash reserves that China had to invest in infrastructure and keep its economic growth going. The slowdown in economic growth in India post-2007 has affected the value of bilateral trade too. So there's a number of different things that are feeding into this. I think there's also a, there has been a reluctance for Australian companies to invest uh, in sustained ways in India. Famously, big Australian telecoms companies had a large slice of the mobile phone market in India, and they actually sold it off just before the boom in mobile phones in India took off. I trust someone suffered for that decision. (laughs) 
I don't know. <laughs> I think you, what you will see is, is firms like some of the big banks, which have already moved into the Pacific and into Southeast Asia. If it becomes easier to trade in, in India, I think they'll also move into those spaces too. And after all, you know, Australia is about the mines, it's about higher education, and it's about services. If Australian service companies can get to do business in a relatively straightforward way, in India, then I think we're going to start to see the economic relationship become significantly more important than it has been for With, the last 10 years. In a cold light of day, is that a short-term realistic proposition? A lot is going to hang on how quickly Modi can drive reform. And he's got to drive it pretty fast if he's going to keep himself in power for another term. And he's got to be aiming at that, given his position at the moment. He's got an enormous weight of expectations on his shoulders. If he can bring about rapid change if you can make it easier for people to invest and to make money in India, then we're going to see mm. that Australian companies, which are pretty hard-nosed about these kinds of decisions, will follow. They won't have any problems in, in going and engaging in India in the way that we might like. But if he doesn't, if he fails, it'll be a tragedy for India and for ordinary Indians. It won't be a tragedy for Australian mm. business, but it will be unfortunate for Australian business. One of the things that's often touted, I think, by the sort of casual observer the India-Australia relationship should be much better than it is, that we have so much in common. You see cliches like the three C's, Commonwealth, Cricket and Curry. And, you know, there's a whole slew of different images people draw out and say that we have so much in common and yet, you know, to which my study response is always, where are the interests? To what extent are our interests actually converge and to what extent do they diverge? And perhaps it's one of the reasons driving both Modi and the Abbott government to improve relations is not just increasing economic concerns, but the sense of converging strategic and political interests. Is that a sense you've got? Yeah. The trading and the economic side of things has bubbled along in the background, but it's the strategic shifts in the Asia-Pacific that I think are driving the two of them together, or the way in which the two of them perceive those and their governments perceive those strategic shifts. So it's unquestionably the case that not just the rise of China, but China's increasing assertiveness has concerned some of the elite in India and some of the elite in Australia, just like it's concerned some of the elite in Japan and elsewhere. And I think you can see that there's no accident that the one big tangible agreement that came out of the visit was a security agreement. Mm. Now, as a casual observer of that <laughs> document, because I haven't looked at it in enough detail yet, it looks to me like a bundling together of a number of things that have already been in prior agreements. Uh, with a little bit of icing on top. Mm. But I think it's an important piece of signalling. It's about saying that, that finally, having had a number of false starts, including the dumping of the quadrilateral initiative back in 2007, after a number of false starts, finally India and Australia can start to cooperate in meaningful ways in defence and security areas. And it parallels the increasing closeness between Australia and Japan, and it also parallels some American actions in the Asia-Pacific region. So in some respects, it's not dissimilar to that 2007 Australia-Japan security declaration where the content of it was kind of, here's what we're sort of doing already on the whole, but it's the symbolism of having the document that says in formal terms and signaling to others and to themselves, this is, this is a priority. 
Yes, I think that's right. It's about formalising something which was already there. But I think it's also about reinvigoration. Bureaucracies always lapse back into kind of inactivity. Bureaucracies that are chronically overworked, as the Indian one is, and, and parts of the Australian one is too, it means that to refocus them on these kinds of things which might not be their top or second priority is always a bit difficult. And I think it's got to serve that kind of focal purpose. What about the areas where Australian Indian's interests diverge? Because I think we tend to always focus, or particularly yeah. supporters of this thing, always look at where the interests are aligned. Where do you think are the most obvious difficult points? I think there's a big disagreement about the kind of world that India's elite wants and the kind of world that Australia's elite wants. I think there are points of consensus and there are points of agreement. And this was highlighted in Modi's speech, for example, talking about having a rule-governed environment and taking international law seriously and especially the law of the sea and so on. But I don't think we can get past the fact that Australia is closely aligned with the United States, that it wants a Western liberal order to flourish, and that India and India's elite has some doubts about that. India has long looked forward on both the left and the right of politics to a multipolar order an order in which there is not one dominant superpower in international politics, where power and influence over hard interests and soft things are a little bit more diversely arranged, if you want to put it in those terms. (laughs) And so in that sense, actually, India's ultimate vision of the world aligns a little bit more to China's than it does to the United States or indeed to Australia's. And then there are little things too. I mean, think about the nuclear weapons issue. It still irritates parts of the Australian foreign policy bureaucracy that India was able to effectively break out of some of the constraints that were put on it in 1998 with the nuclear tests, and that they've now been recognised as a de facto nuclear weapons state. That does rankle with elements Mm. of the Australian elite. That's a useful sort of stepping stone to the sort of broader questions around Modi's foreign policy. He's about six months in. He spent almost a sixth of that time abroad. And I think no one, even the closest Modi watcher, would have anticipated quite such an investment of time and energy mm. and such a personalisation of foreign policy. There was an interesting paper published on, I think it was the Diplomat website, talking about a, a Modi doctrine. As a watcher of Indian foreign policy, what's your sense so far of Modi's foreign policy more generally over the first six months? And mm. it's surprising. But beyond that, are there any patterns, any themes, any direction yet? So it's certainly surprising in terms of the personal focus. I think that's absolutely right. That we didn't expect him particularly to be out there and making it about Narendra Modi. We might have anticipated it, given some of the talk around Modi's style as the chief minister in Gujarat and Modi's style as a politician more broadly. That is a very personalised style of government. I think we are seeing a foreign policy that is very much about business and economic ties first and recognising that India's development has got to come first. And so it's about Modi going out there as he did as Chief Minister of Gujarat and asking for investment, trying to get firms to come to and work in Gujarat and now more widely in India. And so it's India's development first and trying to build those business and economic ties. I think that's very important. We're also seeing, though, that some tentative moves to try to build closer security relationships, most obviously with Japan. I think we will see over the next year or so some moves to try and buy some Japanese arms of various kinds. 
starting off with surveillance aircraft, but there might be other things which the Indians would be interested in down the line. It'll thrill certain parts of the Japanese political establishment. Certainly will, and a lot's going to hang then on whether or not Shinzo Abe wins the election that he's just called. We can see India too reaching out a little bit more into Southeast Asia, especially to Indonesia, because maritime security is a shared issue for both of those. And then India then reaching out to the United States a little, and then to other US mm. allies like Australia as well. It's business first, and it was for Modi in Gujarat, and it seems to be also the case for Modi as Prime Minister of India. And I think that's right. India's development has got to come first. Where there have been little challenges to, to India, for example, there were some intrusions and shootings in Kashmir and through Pakistani forces, certainly the rhetoric was a bit stronger than it was uh, under the Manmohan Singh government, and the BJP had criticised Manmohan Singh for being a little too weak on that. But in the end, India's capacity to coerce neighbours like Pakistan and to prevent it from doing things that it doesn't want it to do are limited. It's even more limited in respect to China. It's all very well to talk tough, but if your bluff is called, India's options are a little bit limited, actually. And do you think there's a touch of the Barack Obama about Modi in the sense of being someone who's got buckets of charisma, campaigns like crazy, master of the new landscape of digital media, language, ground game, all of that sort of stuff, and yet is going to find it, A, because the scale of expectations, mm. delivering on that is almost going to be impossible because expectations are so high, but B, more importantly, the actual capacity to govern, and that's what we've seen, I think, in the, by the midway through the second term of the Obama administration, real problems in policy, implementation, development and the like. Now, it's only six months in, can't be too critical, but it seems that there's a lot on the surface and there perhaps isn't quite as much follow-up as one might like. I think the big difference is that Obama, to a large degree, is a professional politician. Modi, on the other hand, rose to influence and prominence as an administrator. He's an organiser, and not a community organiser. <laughs> a serious apparatchik, both initially within the RSS, within the Hindu nationalist quasi-paramilitary organisation that took him in as a young man, trained him, educated him, uh, helped him to get degrees, uh, including a postgraduate degree in political science. And then they charged him with organising these yatras, these ceremonial processions, one of the ways in which the BJP gets its message out to ordinary Indians. And it was Modi's success in doing that that brought him to the attention of the national leadership. And then as administrator in Gujarat, there's no question that he was able to get the Gujarati bureaucracy to be responsive to the political needs of the people, but also of the politicians themselves. He spends a lot of time, by all accounts, appointing and approving the appointment of bureaucrats in particular positions and testing their capacity to do their jobs. So unlike Obama, he has got a good track record of organisational delivery as an administrator. That's actually pretty unusual mm. for a politician these days. Benefit the doubt from Dr. Hall. Well, that's all the time we've got. Uh, we might revisit this in, in six months or a year to see how he's doing in the face of a broadly positive assessment of his prospects. Thanks, Ian. Thank you very much, Nick.